Thanks for listening to the podcast. I'm Rustin. This episode is an original, a short story that I wrote titled Black God. Jared lived in a high-rise loft, the cost of which hardly dented the trust fund his father set up for him with his banking fortune, which itself was hardly dented by his son's trust fund. An only child, Jared domiciled high above the city, further distanced from humanity than the 24 floors of his residence, and no closer to humanity after his 24 years of living. And this distance, this great height, only made it harder for him to make eye contact with the pizza delivery guy, or the Chinese food delivery guy, or the laundry service guy. Darting eyes, an awkward smirk, and two hands clutching the door when he would peel it back just enough to let them in, only to freeze while they dropped off their goods and then leave to his muffled thank you. Never the banker his father hoped he would become, and never the husband and father his mother hoped he would be, Jared used his Ivy League education in economics as a financial advisor for a clientele limited to those who had known him from high school or college and were somehow able to navigate the tumultuous social waters on which he sailed along in a gulf that was desolate and gray and wet. He communicated almost exclusively through email and text, hardly ever a face-to-face meeting because the thought of picking a place was enough to induce anxiety. In the case of an in-person meeting, it would be on a park bench or a train ride uptown, sitting side-by-side but not facing one another and never a place with pesky waiters or baristas or bartenders to contend with. It was obscure, but the money he made for his clients made it worth it. As his dad would proselytize, our fortune is thanks to our generous God, as was the fortune that was his trust fund and, Jared assumed, as were the small fortunes he made for his clients. Jared had always thought his dad's faith was a haphazard dedication, a lean-to against an unacknowledged self-sustainability a shelter from fear and uncertainty, or a platitude to pacify the persistent thought of money's temporal nature. Growing up, Jared sought to find his father's God by daring him to act. He would damn God, then look to the sky and wait. He would take the wine instead of the grape juice, then look to Christ on the cross. He would curse and fight and tell crude jokes and expect his father to come home disheveled and broken and crying over his lost fortunes. He even burned a Bible, truly expecting hellfire in whichever of God's mysterious ways that his mother spoke of, and still, nothing. But his father preached faith and tithed generously, while Jared snuck books from the library about false religions and philosophy, and fate, and the afterlife as told by someone besides the author of life. 
He was not estranged from God, but curious and unquenched and wrestling with metaphysical hardships while his private school peers partied and procreated. Jared's email chimed. It was his client and former classmate, Bailey, from his international trade analysis class. She had recently lost her corporate finance job, and landing another proved to be more elusive than anticipated. So, she hoped to flourish in the stock market with some seed money and advice from the kid in class she remembered as quiet but mostly harmless, too stricken with his own obvious social anxiety to be a danger. In the rare face-to-face meetings they had wandering the aisles of a public library or driving in circles around the neighborhood, she found herself purging over her recently lost job, her apprehension about her career, and sometimes even slipping in subtle digs about her newlywed husband for what she perceived to be his lack of support. Through it all, Jared listened, almost robotically, maybe callously, but she found solace in it. Bailey's email was a link to a crowdfunding website with the message that read, Please, if you can, anything helps. We trust that God will see us through. And whether you're able to give or not, please, be in prayer for us too. It was her newlywed husband, the one she sometimes grumbled over. Just a few nights ago, he was driving home in the rain, hydroplaned, and was struck by a truck leaving him with severe damage to his brain. He faced the likelihood of never walking or talking again, the likelihood of wheelchair-accessible vans and round-the-clock care. And the only thing Bailey could do was ask for financial support and prayer. Over and over again, Jared scrolled through the pictures of the accident Bailey posted, trying to imagine the sound of it. He finished his slice of pizza and left the crust with the others on a plate by his keyboard, washed his hands, then went to bed. Every day, multiple times a day, Jared would open the link and check the status of Bailey's fundraising goal. Like her husband's progress, money crept in at a snail's pace. But Bailey continued to profess her faith in a God that would heal her husband, or at least provide the finances he needed to get the best care possible from only the very best hospitals. Jared never heard of her speak of her God until now, and he wanted to ask her what she thought her God was waiting on, or if she had looked to the sky and damned him, or burned a Bible or made a command of him. Or maybe it was because she grumbled about her husband, and so now here he was, in pictures, on her website, laying in a hospital bed stuck full of tubes. And so now here she was, sitting next to him, dumbstruck by the tunes of breathing machines and a chirping metronome keeping the pace of the frailty of life. After some time, Bailey texted Jared and said, Sorry, I've been out. My husband is in the hospital after a very bad car accident. I sent you an email about it. I do need to get back in the stock market, though, so I will be in touch. Jared thought a while and reread her message again and again. He typed draft after draft before finally settling on, I must have missed your email. I am sorry to hear that. Reach out when you want or are ready to do so. His finger hovered over the send button and, in rapid succession, he mashed it, then turned the phone over onto his desk and slid it away with the back of his hand like a robot moving product 
down an assembly line. It was half past nine, and she wasn't half past her goal, and Jared chewed his nails as it seemed that her God would be the last to console her, yet she was still assured that he was the controller. He waited to hear her more desperate pleas for his recovery or their financial needs, and the pleas eventually came as donations slowed to a trickle, and the pleas became more desperate as the trickle became a drip and the goal was as far away as Bailey's hope. What Jared truly waited for was her confession of contrition and frustration for being put in such a position. But who can ever be that honest when reality is impossible to face? And who has the courage to speak unfiltered, especially to someone who oversees our comings and goings, all the while knowing that the pent-up angst would only procreate within, birthing a multitude of sins that would then require a penitence making most people wish instead for a sentence of eternal separation. It was incarceration in a maze with no end. Jared watched her work through it in amazement and then decided that he intended to be the God that never did send what she seemed to so earnestly pray for. Bailey's latest update sang his praises and sang of his faithfulness almost as poetically as the psalm she quoted. With one anonymous donation, the lofty goal was met and then some. With the same heart that we sin from, she wrote, we are also capable of deeds so great that they shun doubt and faithlessness and make room in the heart for his irreplaceable gift of love. Into the early hours of the morning, Jared spent hours scouring through the thousands of other stories like Bailey's husband. Stories of people soul-searching, asking, now what then? But he was most intrigued by those reaching out to a god. Some would do so out of a virgin sense of distress or a brush with death or their first sense of smallness, and others out of a lifetime of faithfulness, inside wondering what kind of god would allow this, while on the outside being ever quick to dismiss any notion of doubt. And then he would give. He gave tens of thousands to the thief on his left, proclaiming faith in the face of death, and tens of thousands to those proclaiming great faith in the God of their faith. And they would all preach that their God's mercy had abound after they triple-checked the zeros and the anonymous donor's amount. He gave more in a few nights than most could count, and he reveled that in response they would all pronounce a newfound faith or evidence that their God had a place on earth and was doing great works. But after weeks of this, he found himself to be bored. Pulling people back from the brink and giving enough to make people think that there was something bigger than us, reaching down to cease death's trigger and plus, wasn't there more to being God than merciful intervention? There was more than just mercy to your God's intention because without death, there is no life. And without a God's justice, there is no mercy. So we therefore must see God's great wrathful judgment in whatever form it may be, trying the faith of the most absolute and those teetering on what they're told is the truth and the world that pollutes it. So then, spending hours into the early morning hours again, Jared researched local churches of all faiths. He studied the online lives of their staff and then began to follow a few. 
He was even bold enough to visit their churches, always sitting in the furthest pew and always being the first to leave too. Eventually, he decided on Mary Baker. She was the secretary of a small Baptist church, and he could feel her age when he would shake her hand on Sunday mornings. In her early 60s and a long-time member of the church as well, Jared thought that her tragic death would compel the congregation to revisit the certainty of their faith, begging questions of heaven and hell and Satan and demons. He couldn't wait to see when the news broke whose faith would break too, teaching those of faith that faith makes you simple-minded. And prescribed answers remind us that, instead of being blind to facts, we should recognize that we are gods, able to manipulate the material, and that we should capitulate to imperial worldly truths. Let your faith run through the gauntlet of senseless tragedy, he thought, and then we'll see who your God is and what you thought your God to be. For weeks, he followed her, mapping her movements and measuring her levels of vulnerability against being able to maximize his anonymity. She always left work when the sun was still out, usually around three, and he thought how theatrical it might be for her to be found dead in front of the church, only 100 feet away from where they would park the hearse that would lead her procession. But while she was the first to leave at the end of the day, she was always the first into the office on average for 15 minutes before the next employee would arrive so he could act before she ever made it inside. He waited in the dark with his car parked only a few blocks away, wanting to take in the aftermath but knowing that the scene would be too hot for him to stay. With his snub-nosed revolver by his side, he focused on being in the moment as she pulled into the same spot as every other morning. She killed the engine, stepped out, and without warning, Jared slid from the darkness like a shape-shifting beast, dripping darkness from himself. The safety was off release and the hammer was cocked back and he couldn't wait to see people shocked that something like this could happen. Someone like Mary Baker could be shot at. Mary opened her trunk to retrieve her bags for the day. Jared put the gun mere feet from her head, pulled the trigger, and her body sagged, then slumped away. He dropped the gun to his side and observed the blood and brains on the trunk like full fathom five. The terror supplied by mere man, contrived by the same hand that brought so many monetary consolation. The mess made shapes and patterns like constellations against the darkest night sky. And he finally ran away, contrite by no means, taking her purse from the scene while checking his jeans for blood. He emptied the purse in the grass as he walked, then tossed it over a fence and drove carefully down the streets he stalked when planning his getaway. In the days following, Jared monitored the news closely, printing articles of the coverage that mostly focused on Mary's faith and dedication to her church. He highlighted the quotes of the congregants now forced to search for answers and reason, and it pleased him to see the faithful pleas for help. They tore their robes in grief, and there was wailing and gnashing of teeth. 
This was not a peaceful death in sleep and not just about being unexpected, but about violence and an incomprehensible motive, a death no one suspected someone like Mary would die from. While her fellow congregants found solace in God from life's unknown mysteries, never before had life's uncertainties been so personal. They never had to ask who took their friend's purse and stole her life and therefore required a re-examination of their faith that had always seemed to bring purpose and order and justice. Jared knew that with faith, there was never a just is or just because, because any God who is really a God has reason for all that he does and doesn't allow a grain of sand or a falling leaf to run afoul from what he has set forth. And this made him wonder what he was sent for or if he was sent at all. Or maybe that he was sent to call people home, or just as he suspected that he was all alone and completely owned his part of the world and could bring terror to disrupt false faith and to make people see fate was frail and malleable, that all sin and suffering was allowable and unstoppable. So he brought people to the realization that we as complex creations are just as pliable as our beliefs through the use of bullets and blood and gunpowder and steel. With his gun, he had the power to steal the solid rock and turn the land into shifting sand. The police said it looked like a robbery, but that they couldn't see why her purse was just scattered, and they suspected more sinister motives because the blood splatters on the trunk indicated a close-range, execution-style murder. But they were still clueless, and no further along in their investigation when another body dropped. Through his internet browsing, he came along Mark Miller, the lead pastor of another local church, this time of the Methodist denomination. He followed Mark for weeks, trying to contemplate when he would strike. Mark went for a run every morning before heading into the office, taking the same route every time, never wavering off his routine. His stretch of run up North Street was the least populated, and it was early in his route, giving Jared time before his wife would ever report that he never made it home. Mark's morning came as Jared hid in the dark between the streetlights on North Street. There were long stretches of blackness between each, and the concrete underneath Mark's feet echoed out in the morning as he jogged along to the music in his headphones. He passed Jared, shrouded in darkness, and that's when he stepped out and squeezed the trigger leaving Mark's head blown to pieces, and then his body shuddered and collapsed onto the sidewalk, lit by the streetlight. The orange glow lay over his body like his last sunrise, and as Jared stood over him, he surmised that the surprise from all who knew Mark would balk at the stark lines his murder would draw. His congregation would fiend for reason like an addict and withdraw. But all Jared ever saw was blind reasoning to tame the things we've never seen or heard and simply taking the unseen at his word and to still serve despite the absurd violence and unrepentance. Jared thought that it was only relentless tragedy that would make people see that man is godly and what we should let God be is a mere simple answer to a simple man's search for destiny. 
But for those questioning and seeking reasoning, Jared thought that the murder of the vocationally faithful and even those occasionally grateful to God when things worked out in their favor would allow all to see that God is not seen in our neighbor, but instead in mortal hands and mortal hearts, making stands and making the parts and pieces of our life our own controlling and directing and taking credit for seed sown. Again, Jared sat among the stories he printed that covered Mark's murder, and they detailed how it served as a perjure of the people, a catalyst for those who worshipped under his church's steeple, to make sense from senselessness, and to find light in darkness, to love one's enemy, though plainly heartless. Mark's mourning family would painfully impress upon the church's members and believers across the city that God did not have his back turned when this happened. Or did he? Was it more comforting knowing that God saw it all, making orphans in a widow? waiting to see how those around Mark would find the window to this closed door, twisting the screws of faith, knowing more than what he allows us or lets us in on. We find comfort in knowing that the night is always darkest before the dawn. And Jared thought he set this all in motion. With murder and money, he could steer the notions of belief and faith. Weeks passed and police had no definitive motive and weren't even sure if the murders were connected. From his computer, Jared continued to monitor the aftermath, and just as he suspected, people remained so fraught with spiritual turmoil that they were perplexed when questioned how they remained faithful. What stood out to him among all the coverage was Paul Wagner and his talk of angels and demons and spiritual warfare and his decisiveness when expounding upon if it was more fair for God to take our pastors, leaving us with a cross to bear, or if God should allow us into him at all. Because since the fall, in the beginning, we're told that we have chosen to continue sinning, and therefore are deserving only of his wrath and judgment, because that would be a fair price to pay for continuing to give our life away to the delinquent desires that were wired in us in the womb anyway. Paul was a pastor alongside Mark at his church and led fundraising efforts by selling merchandise bearing his name and the cross for which he lived and died. Jared watched him for weeks after every Sunday service and saw that he stored the proceeds inside a lockbox he would take home, then to the bank first thing in the morning. Jared thought he would make jobs of Paul's people by taking more from them while they were still in mourning, and then continue to expect the faith of a child, faith like the ones who have yet to be defiled by what we perceive to be his silence and unanswered prayers and the lunacy of senseless death. And since his death on the cross, when we find ourselves lost in his silence, we are told that we are only the clay and not to question the potter, but instead should ponder where we were when he made the earth and the universe and the stars so far away, and that our treasures are hidden in jars of clay. We're told to focus on overcoming in him and not answers or reason, but at the same time that for all things, there is a season. On the Monday morning he chose for Paul, 
Jared waited in the shadows on the side of his home, revolver by his side, the chrome cool in his hand, and then he crouched from standing when he heard the front door open, then close. He had placed a trash can behind Paul's car, and when he heard him rolling it away, he arose from hiding, prowling along the side of the car, providing just enough concealment to sneak behind Paul as he returned and opened the driver's door. Jared stood and brought the gun up from his side just as the front door opened and his wife screamed in surprise to see the shadowy figure behind her husband. He squeezed the trigger and saw the frailty of our morality was unable to contend when the bullet ripped through skull and flesh and blood and his body dropped into the fresh mud on the lawn. She screamed again and Jared saw her holding the lockbox he had planned to steal in an effort to conceal his motives. He ducked away into the darkness, following the path he had previously chosen to escape unnoticed. It didn't take long for police to connect his murders after Paul's went awry. Jared watched all of the coverage, again highlighting articles that were now public outcries for there to be a stop to the murders and for church workers to be alert and vigilant. And the faithful wrestled with why he would kill the innocent. And in a sense, he knew that the innocence of faith is why so many believed, though they now faced questions of why sin was ever conceived. And although police knew the murders were related, They had no clear leads on a suspect and even considered that the murderer was aided by another. And Paul's wife told police she couldn't make out the man and would rather not relive the moment anyway. It was a spiritual awakening, he thought, one like any sermon could muster. The tragic deaths he allowed were the mustard seeds of a newfound faith in which we must receive more than just agricultural analogies obscured by time and folklore, and instead focus more on the tangible and the real and the here and the now. How could it be that people could hear how their stalwart of faith was murdered and then face those burdened with its weight and say with certainty that God wanted it this way? Because if God isn't responsible, then it must be Satan. And although we hate when sin is victorious, we cannot deny its power over us. So Satan is either equal to him in power, acting with autonomy, or God knew Jared from birth, made him to be a killer, and let it be. God is no pilot or captain if his vessels direct their own path, so then through the same rod and staff that bring comfort in the shadow of death, he must then ordain some to take the breath from whomever he chooses. This then leads the faithful to wonder who he chooses and why and who he chooses to be the killer and how he chooses who should die. He has made it such that we are wired for justice, though subjective, therefore making it so our line of morality is projected on others. But we are taught that we are broken and riddled with sin, so that line is then blurred, making it such that we must rely solely on His Word to define the line between right and wrong, so clearly that even the blind could see that the tax collector must be made right for his thievery. And yet believers have never been able to agree or find the line in the sand because culture and time speak into the stand we take and who we convict. 
So he sought to conflict those that so quickly preached peace and forgiveness by taking someone in the church who lived a less honorable life than the workers and preachers that died before. Without second thought, he chose Timothy Law, a former preacher whose name Jared saw time and time again while researching his victims in their spiritual postmortems. Timothy was out on bond awaiting trial for crimes that were the most grim of which most of them he maintained his innocence despite mounting evidence that proved the contrary. Timothy had sexually abused children in his care, then tried to bury their confessions by teaching them lessons in the godliness of God's teachers, and that their secrets were each their own, and that while God sat on his throne, he knew the secrets of our hearts. And God would know if parts of those secrets were to ever be spoken of. And so they would find themselves spiritually broken because God honors the secret keepers, but warns that those who share them find a place deeper in hell, so deep that it would dispel the kid's intuition to tell a trusted adult that their favorite pastor had raped them. And Timothy knew it would insult the spiritual foundation with which their parents had built their lives, and it would immediately deprive them of a sense of safety and make the most faithful unable to see why a man of God would partake in such wickedness, acts that made it impossible to dismiss a yearning for justice beyond that of what a court could hand down. So he sought to be the one to confound those that taught that we are to allow God's vengeance in whatever form it may come, or that the courts belong to God and that we ought not stray from allowing him to work in whatever way he chooses, which also means that we aren't to question who he uses to execute his plan, even if that means using Jared to execute a man who took virginity from children, then filled them with the fear of the Lord and the fear of his sword by using his word to ensure they remained silent. And because they trusted him, they allowed the violent abuse to continue, time after time, and his fear stole their voices, leaving them unable to find any refuge. But maybe our bloodlust is as much of a sickness as Timothy's proclivities, and that we all suffer from the same disease, though the symptoms look different in us all. Then since the fall, we are powerless to this sickness, leaving us to call after the one who both made this disease and has the cure for it. Though that same disease permeates our moralities, leaving us to mourn less, if at all, for the pedophile, all while preaching that, though they might be defiled, we should love our enemies. Despite that, our realities are such that we want to fight back against some sin, while others we allow in unchecked and build our lives around them, all while knowing they continue to infect us with that disease. He knew his next target, and like the others, Jared watched him for weeks, waiting for the optimal time to wreak the spiritual awakening upon those that considered themselves true believers. By killing Timothy, he would prove them to be deceivers of the faith instead of receivers of the grace that we should bestow on all others. 
Timothy checked the previous day's mail every morning under the cover of darkness so as to not be seen because he was obviously keen to the fact that the odds were stacked against him ever making it to trial. And he was going to make sure that the vile nature with which Timothy would die would satisfy those that sought his blood. On the morning he had chosen for Timothy, he took Timothy's mail and scattered it at the end of his porch, ready to close in when he stepped out to gather it. He made himself small in the darkness by the door as he had to fit himself inside of it. Timothy opened his door, took a few steps, then froze at the sight of the mail. By the length of his paws, it was obvious that he couldn't tell if something so out of the ordinary meant that he should go back inside or, on the contrary, if there was a practical reason to explain why his mail was not in the box. He could hear Timothy breathe deeply as his thoughts raced. He could either retrace his steps back inside or quickly gather his mail, then go back and hide. Timothy pitter-pattered forward in a hurry, and just as he bent down, Jared's footsteps came in a flurry. Timothy stood up after gathering his mail only to hear a gunshot, and then came a hail of brain matter and skull as his body became dull to the effects of gravity. And as his body fell, he thought about how people would be glad to see this man deceased. Jared crowned himself the beast that God had chosen to execute his wrath as he sprinted away along his predetermined path to escape. Jared scoured articles for days after the murder, finding that there was much less spiritual fervor for the criminal that died, making him believe that we are no further than Adam and Eve who chose to hide from God after listening to the serpent. He saw that the tears mourners had were spent on those whose sin wasn't made public and therefore never had man's morality inflict its judgment. And he knew that his followers struggled with accepting that Timothy was his son, an heir to the inheritance, so some taught that maybe Timothy was never truly a believer and instead was so wrought with sin that the Holy Spirit could have never been within him. He could feel the power pulsating through his hands, the trepidation in the air. As he sat in his high-rise loft, leaning back in his chair, he awaited the stirring of his soul to determine his next move, believing he was in control of all things and efforting to prove that he oversees our triumphs as well as our tragedies, despite all of the great fallacies of our faith. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a five-star rating and a review and share it. And don't forget to subscribe as well so you get updated when new episodes are posted. Also, make sure you check out the show notes for some helpful links, including one to my Patreon page where you can sign up to get early access to episodes, exclusive content, and more. So make sure you check out the show notes for that link.